Inside a rough and ruthless newsroom, thousands of stories fight for the spotlight. Only a few survive past their 15 minutes of fame. So what makes for a good headline and what makes for a buried byline? Join us, two former TV news producers, as we dig up stories that never got the recognition or justice they deserve. I'm Mallory Wilson. I'm Megan DeLucine. And this is Buried Bylines. Today's case is a doozy, to say the least. So I wanted to give a trigger warning off the top. It's going to be an intense episode. I'm not going to sensationalize details, but I'm not going to sugarcoat them either. So, perfect. Trigger perfect. warning. Yep, this case has to do with cannibalism, murder, sexual assault, among other things. Um, despite those things, it's going to be a great episode because we have a guest with us today. We do. And I'm so, so, so excited because this is one of my best friends. And she covered this case, the tail end of it, the trial part of it, when she worked in Louisville. Um, we went to Ball State together. We became friends through the news program there. And today we have Abby Walker, formerly known as Abby Lutz, her TV name. She's since been married. And so normally, Abby, we just have people talk about, like, how they got into news, what their career looked like, and what you're doing now. Oh, fun. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you, Mal. It's so fun being here. Thank you guys for having me. Um, yes. So my past with news, I met Mal at Ball State where we were studying school students to be broadcasters. Um, I got into journalism kind of as an accident. I was trying to get into telecommunications and they just put me on the track and I was like, okay, I like it. But I just really cared about advocating for my community and that was really the driving force for me to be a reporter. I got a job out of college and I worked in South Bend, Indiana for a couple of years and then went on to Louisville, Kentucky and was working out of a station there for a while. Um, I have since moved on from news because my name changed. I got married and I... <laughs> live across the country now and I work as a communications manager so I get to use the same skill set but um just kind of on the other side of things the dark side of PR that we all every the dark side <laughs> every guest that we've had is like here's my career path here's what I did in news and here's what I do outside of news now because right. I don't do it anymore goodbye <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I will say, though, it's such an easy transition to go out because mm -hmm. news is so stressful and you have to do like 10 things at a time. And then it's like, oh, I only have to do two things at a time. Max, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. So thank you for joining us today. Yeah. If you want to jump in at any point, just stop me. Yeah, well, I think that I will say, especially in the news, we know that stories get buried. And this was one, it was a six-day trial, and I was there every single day. My news station allowed me to do that, which I think is unique. And I really appreciate it because I did feel like I was giving justice to the story in a way that sometimes you don't get to do when you just do a day cover of something. So yeah, it was a full, like over a week of my life that I was oh. really in this story and in this trial and it was during COVID-19 too so there were no guests uh -huh. no one was allowed inside the newsroom that's crazy oh my gosh okay so let's just let's just get okay we're gonna okay. jump into it so today we're going to talk about the murder of Indiana native Tammy Joe Blanton in 
2014. So we'll start by describing Tammy Jo Blanton, and here's where I will jump on my first soapbox. This case ended up getting national attention. Local stations were really on it as well. A lot of my information comes from the Courier-Journal in Louisville, Kentucky, because this happened in Southern Indiana. Actually, most of my information comes from that newspaper. They did a phenomenal job um, covering it from 2014 to 2022, or 2023, I guess. But I also got information from WAVE, WDRB, the Star Press, among others. But I quickly found out that Tammy got lost in a lot of the coverage, which we see happens all the time. The media coverage for this case was centered heavily around what happened to her and not a lot about her, like who she was as a person. So in my research, I really wanted to make sure that I highlighted that and found it. And it was difficult, I will say. So that's my first of many soapboxes um, that will happen throughout this. That's always hard. I feel like we've done a couple cases where we have scoured the internet and mm-hmm. can't find anything about a victim. And we're just like, it hurts because it's like these were people. And the mm-hmm. fact that there's no information out there to accurately portray who they were when they were alive is hard yeah so I think that when we have a case like this that you are getting hit with so much information that's so outside the realm of even anything you've imagined that Mm -hmm. you start to focus on that and that does end up taking more time and space in a story um and I will also say the family I mean what you're going through when your loved one was killed in this way is so hard And everyone is going to go about that differently. And I know during the trial, the family really didn't want to talk. They didn't talk until after um, when they were able to talk to Joseph Oberhansley himself. And I think that that's, you know, that's fair. That's really difficult to deal with. And that also takes, um, you know, then you can't use those. You can't talk. If you're not talking to the family, you're not really going to understand what the victim was like. Right. Yeah. Right. And I totally get that because like, I mean, we'll, we'll go on to talk about it but I think this this took six years to actually go to trial after she was murdered so to the day to the day I was my favorite part that was my favorite part of this whole thing okay so I got this information from her obituary not a news article I really had to dig for some of this so Tammy Jo Harbin Blanton according to her obituary was a 46 year old woman who worked in billing and coding at Zermed which was a health consultant company she was a 1986 graduate of Jefferson High School in Jefferson Indiana so that's again southern Indiana WRDB did an interview with one of Tammy's friends her friend who the article did not name, described her as a confident and joyful person. Um, She said she had the biggest smile and a big personality to go with it. And even in this article, the friend said, after hearing about what happened to her over and over and over, they want to shift the focus to Tammy. Her friend said, quote, Tammy was an extremely independent, a very strong person. She really had her life together. Another article, her neighbor said she would always come out and say hi. So she seemed like a really nice, really cool person. And if you look at pictures of her, which there were a couple that ran when this happened, you can kind of tell that, like the kind of person she was. So just full of life. But that life was snuffed out on September 11th of 2014. Buckle up, bitches, because (laughs) this is fucking crazy. Jefferson police got a call from Tammy Jo Blanton at 3 a.m. 
to report that her ex-boyfriend, an Indiana man named Joseph Oberhansley, was trying to break into her house. Police arrived and Oberhansley agreed to leave. Um, a little background here. In the days before Tammy was murdered, she had ended the relationship, changed the locks on her doors. We'll get into why she did that a little later, and it's going to make you angry. I had flames coming out of my eyes and ears during this whole case. <laughs> <laughs> so I apologize for how mad I'm going to get. But Jeffersonville police returned to the home the next day when Tammy didn't show up for work. Her coworkers had called police for a welfare check. So when they arrived to the home that morning, it was Oberhansley who opened the door. Red flag number one. According to the Courier Journal, police noticed signs of forced entry on the back door. Red flag number two. And his knuckles are bloody. Red flag number 1,000. According to an article in WLKY, officers later testified in court that they asked him if they could see Tammy, and he said no. He didn't so lie. Right, right away, <laughs> not good. He didn't lie. I mean, I guess. Major Mark Lovin later testified Oberhansley seemed nervous and started pacing on the front porch when officers asked if they could pat him down. I always tell you when in a case I would quit my job as a police officer. And this next part is when I would yeet my badge across the street. Police said he refused to comply and had to be handcuffed during the pat down. Officers say they found a brass knuckle knife in his pocket. And this is bad. It was reportedly covered in hair and blood. Several officers later testified that the back door also appeared to have been forced open. And if I hadn't already yeeted my badge, this is where I would dig a hole and put it in there like they did Jumanji. Because (laughs) (laughs) what these officers discovered next, as many media outlets described it, and the prosecutor was quoted many times, was straight out of a horror movie. It sounds Worse than a horror movie, is what you said. Yes, it sounds cliche, but that is not a joke. Like, that is not a sensationalized quote. It's not an exaggeration. It's awful. One of the officers went into the home and reported seeing blood on the light switches. She also saw blood on several surfaces in the bathroom. And this woman is much stronger than me because all she did was back out of the house and get a team of officers. (laughs) There would be a Megan-shaped outline in the door, in the car, in the airport, in the plane, to Jamaica like I all the way out and this this is even worse guys so skip ahead I'd say like 20 seconds if you need to they found Tammy's dismembered body in the bathtub according to the Courier Journal her body was covered up with a tarp she had been stabbed several times in the head neck and chest the medical examiner later said she died of multiple blunt force trauma injuries and that's bad enough right but we're going to get into detail even more so trigger warning for probably the next five minutes. So just skip <laughs> for the rest of the episode. <laughs> the rest of the episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I want to know, I'm not going into a ton of detail, but I do think it's important to understand just how fucked up this guy is and was because this 100% could have been prevented if the justice system did its job. And I'll tell you why later. So her body was heavily mutilated. According to law and crime, the front part of her skull Parts of her brain, lung, and most of her heart were missing. Oh, wow. Yep. We later find out there was evidence of rape as well. In the kitchen, officers found parts of her organs on a plate and in a frying pan. Obviously, they took him into custody. Uh, Originally, he told police two black men broke into the home and killed Tammy. And I want people to stop fucking doing this because I'm tired of it. Like, the black guy did it. 
that's how you get people innocently thrown in jail. Like, I'm not even mad brass knuckles with hair and blood on them. Correct. <laughs> yes. Like, Thankfully, you're not fooling anybody. <laughs> no. No. Police didn't believe him. He eventually confessed to killing her hours after police discovered Tammy's body. He was then arrested, charged with burglary, rape, and murder. The rape charge was added after prosecutors received Indiana State Police's lab results of the victim's body. In a subsequent interview, according to Law and Crime, Oberhansley told police he ate Tammy's brain and also, quote, tried to pull out her third eye with tongs. He also admitted to eating the organs he removed from Tammy's body. And I'm sure, Abby, he talked about because he took the stand, right, in his own <laughs> trial <Yeah>. later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I'm sure you heard all about it. He was the defense's only person that they called to the stand. It was oh him. He was it. Oh, my God. Um, and when police were questioning him right after they arrested him, this is dire- this is day of, that interview lasted, I think, about three hours. And they played the entire thing in court. <gasps> so we heard all of it. I will say he did he started with the story that there were two men who came in they knocked him out he was on the ground unconscious and when he woke up he was scared and so he grabbed the knife and then police knocked on the door which would have made him laying on the floor for like six hours but that was what he was saying and it took it did take hours for him to say I did kill Tammy and Mm -hmm. so he is when he took the stand was saying that he was coerced into yeah. a false confession because of that. Um, yep. But I think that, and what the defense drew a lot of attention to was his demeanor. And in this recorded interview, he was buzzing. He was, he uh-huh. was literally buzzing and like, bzz, bzz, like <laughs> making the noise with his mouth. <laughs> oh, and I think that it speaks to though, like where yeah. this man's head at. And he kept talking about, Zeus. I remember sitting there and like trying to put together what this man is talking about. There was a statue of Zeus on like a little statue of Zeus on the mantle in the home. And he was like, I remember him saying like, Zeus told me to do it. Well, I just did what Zeus Mm -hmm. said. And it's showing and this was a huge part of the defense's side of it was showing like this man was not thinking for himself. At the same time, it was just wild to listen to. Yes. I was gonna say, like, well, well, I'm sure we'll get to it, but this has to be, like, an insanity, like... This is a court case you want to sit in on, for sure. But this really, really hit the media when the probable cause affidavit was released. It goes without saying why this case blew up. It's sensational, it's weird, it's horrifying. It's a perfect story for, like, I think multiple tabloids picked it up as well, and were really gross about it. So we're gonna step into the court of it all now. Um... So, Abby, you're going to have to fill in anything I miss because it's a little convoluted. Joseph Oberhansley's first trial was scheduled for August of 2016. According to People magazine, Oberhansley was deemed incompetent to stand trial in 2017 after three different medical evaluations. He was sent to receive treatment at the Indiana Division of mental health and addiction until he could be deemed competent to stand trial mind you this entire time he's now denying the charges against him and saying that he's innocent and at this point 
in 2017, the death penalty is still on the table for him. He was eventually deemed competent to stand trial by a state psychiatrist at the Logansport State Hospital in 2018, with a hearing set for August of 2019. The argument of Oberhansley's defense attorneys at this time, he was legally insane at the time of the murder. Now, under Indiana state law, a person is not responsible for a crime if, quote, as a result of a mental disease or defect defined as severely abnormal mental condition that grossly and demonstrably impairs a person's perception that they were unable to understand the wrongfulness of their actions at that time. Basically, besides being guilty or not guilty, a defendant can be found not responsible by reason of insanity or guilty but mentally ill. This is where it gets a little bit tricky. So I don't know what you think, Abby, but in my opinion, he knew what he was doing. He lied to police officers when he opened the door. Actually, I read this. I can't remember what article I read, but he claimed to be Tammy's brother when he answered a phone call from her work asking where she was. So that's like trying to cover it up. He knew what he did was wrong. Plus, medical evidence showed he raped her. So I don't really, I don't buy the insanity claims, but... I'm not arguing he doesn't have like a mental health issue or addiction. So it's tricky. What do you think? Well, I want to be careful about rape because he was not convicted on it. And it is a gray area. That's Um, true. Allegedly. Allegedly. There are (laughs) signs that point to it, but we don't have the actual medical evidence that we needed because they didn't think about it at first. It was so focused. I mean, you walk into this scene and you're so focused on everything else. Uh, But they brought up text messages in the trial too that he picked up someone took tammy's phone at nine that morning and was texting her grandma back (gasps) and was like how can i help you i missed a call from you or something it was like oh god um, so that's another just to your point of clearly trying to cover it up clearly Uh understanding that something was wrong and trying to lie about it good point thank you for legally covering my ass um (laughs) (laughs) so yeah according to police when he was left alone in the interrogation room like you said he was making intermittent buzzing noises um he said get back oberhansley also told police he could yeah he could hear tammy's thoughts and that she was going to cut off his head among other weird things now we're at the trial at this point according to the star press the former clark county prosecutor had planned to seek the death penalty but there's a new prosecutor in town named jeremy mull who decided not to and he said this was due to the high probability that the case could be overturned on appeal due to Overhansley's mental state mull also said that in return for taking the death penalty off the table Oberhansley's attorneys agreed not to use mental health information in his defense based on Oberhansley's own refusal to use the insanity defense. So at this point, he's facing life in prison without parole. So for this first trial, the jury was bussed in from Hamilton County, which is multiple counties away from where this happened. In our neck of the woods. Yeah, central Indiana, baby, um, to ensure that he got a fair trial. So when it begins, this is where we get a lot of the horrible, grisly details. Like I said before, I don't want to sensationalize this, but I do want to tell the full story. We find out that Tammy was found with at least 25 stab wounds and blunt force injuries on her throat, neck, nose, mouth, lips, fingers, and chest. So this was absolutely brutal. 
Yeah, the yeah. definition of overkill. We also learned the day before she was murdered, Tammy told her friends and co-workers that she was taking her life back and that she wasn't going to live in fear of Oberhansley or keep staying at her friend's house, which she was doing, which is really sad. Prosecutor Mole told jurors that in the final moments before she died, Tammy locked herself in the bathroom. Evidence showed that Oberhansley forced his way in, so that's, I can't, I cannot even imagine what she was thinking before that happened. So now we're adding to the list of things that tick me off about this case. Although the defense wasn't technically allowed to present evidence related to Oberhansley's sanity or state of mind, one of his attorneys asked the jury to think about whether a person who eats the brain and heart of his ex-girlfriend is, quote, thinking right. To me, that is mentioning his mental state. Objection leading. <laughs> yeah. There was yes. a lot of of just mentions of, well, let's look at the full story of this. What yes. was his demeanor like? How was he acting? That was a lot of the question that the the, the defense was yep. asking during the entire trial. Tell me he's insane without telling me he's insane, basically. But like you said, Abby, just days after the trial began, a judge granted the defense's motion for a mistrial. This came after a state's witness, who was Tammy's friend, Donna Victoria, mentioned Oberhamsley's criminal past and drug use, and that Tammy didn't call police after a previous incident between the couple because she didn't want him to go back to prison. His defense team argued that even telling the jury to disregard the comments would taint the jury. So that's something new I learned about the court system through this research. Apparently, the rules of evidence generally doesn't allow the mention of prior criminal history unless it's agreed to beforehand. According to the Courier-Journal, Prosecutor Mole told the judge he even met with each witness before the trial started and told them not to mention his criminal history. Mole later said he agreed with the judge's ruling because it would likely have grounds to be overturned on appeal if the trial continued. After the mistrial was declared, Oberhansley's attorneys again were seeking psychiatric competency evaluations. According to the News and Tribune, as part of an agreement between his defense attorneys and Clark County prosecutors, Oberhansley was ordered to go back to the state mental hospital in 2020. So the Evansville, I know, there's, <laughs> it's a lot of stays in the mental hospital for this man. The Evansville Courier and Press reports that jurors eventually had to be drawn from Allen County, which is northern Indiana, because it was far from the media markets of southern Indiana, Indianapolis, Louisville, Kentucky. Like we said before, this case got a ton of attention local and national so yeah it's hard to have a jury of your peers that doesn't know about it if it's heavily covered skip ahead to september of 2020 this is when we meet abby and she is in her journalism days Oberhansley <laughs> was deemed competent to stand trial and we're in for round two and the trial kicked off on september 11th exactly six years after Tammy was found murdered. The fact that that was the case, and I remember the opening statements and the prosecutor talking about Tammy, and it just, it felt, I, I mean, I have goosebumps even thinking about mm -hmm. it because it was such a long process for that prosecutor specifically. He really cared about this family and really cared about his community and really wanted this man to be brought to justice. And it just, it was wild that it was six years to the day. When do you see that happen? And to be able to finally start that final step towards justice, I think that it was really meaningful. All right, let's yeah. jump into the, the okay. actual court case. Gotcha. So I'm not going to rehash the grisly details. You can read about them if you want to. 
I do, however, want to note that a psychologist testified as an expert witness for the defense, saying he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and exhibited signs of olfactory hallucinations during that recorded interview where he was being weird. Um, just wanted to know the experts did confirm he had a mental health issue, which the defense agreed not to mention, but whatever. I would like you, Abby, to describe this trial a little bit. It was awful. It was a terrible story to be reporting. And I think to wrap it back to what you said at the beginning, the family having to relive all of this and hear about all of this and know that her heart was removed, that a piece of her skull was gone, that her brain was in the frying pan. It's awful. And there was, it was just sad. And I, I think that the one part that made it um, something a little bit good was that we were finally getting justice and six years in the making this has ha had happened. So the prosecutor was really passionate about this case and, and you could tell that. I will say that before all of this happened, to work chronologically, before this even happened, there was a lot going on between Tammy and Joseph. And they they did read up some text messages in court talking about that she had apparently told one of her friends that he had raped her a few days before. Mm -hmm. So there were text messages between the two of them that she said, I'm checking myself into a hotel. Um, what do you want from me? You scared me. You've hurt me for the last time. Um, from her to him, I won't be coming home. You can choose to be in denial of what happened Saturday night, but I won't be in denial. There was also a text, I highlighted this one. You came into my life like a wonderful dream, but left like an awful nightmare. I might as well say F it and just do the deed and take myself out so you don't get to. <gasps> Stop. I, oh my God. I have goosebumps. I oh asked you to leave. You refused and punished me. Why, after all the lies, pain, hurt you have done to me, would anyone in their right mind expect that they deserve me? I'm scared right. of you, JJ. She called him JJ. I'm scared of you, JJ. You did that, not me. So there was, this was happening, this was all sent on September 6th. So we're talking a few days before. She had told a friend that he had raped her. She had checked herself into a hotel, according to the text messages. It was her house, although Joseph had been yeah. living there for six months and he says he was paying rent. It was her house. And then he ended up coming to her work as well and got to her desk. And there were texts oh from between her and a coworker as well saying, how did he get to my desk? How was he through security and all the way up to my desk? Um, she was really frustrated by it. And there were more texts of her saying, stay away from me. She told him that she changed the locks. She was trying to work with him to get his stuff because I guess he still had some stuff there. And she mm -hmm. was like, I will help coordinate getting your stuff, but I do not want you around me. And she did say, I'm taking my life back. And mm -hmm. so... I, the prosecutor, I highlighted this, he and his final statements, he said, we have the age old, tired, familiar story of a guy who's been told no more, I'm done, and he won't accept it. Yep. Period, prosecutor mole. Some friends already knew that something was going on. The night that it happened, she was also texting a friend. She said she had a chair under the door. All the windows were locked, that he had come, that she had given him some of his items and told him to come back the next day and she had called 911 
and she felt like she was good for the night and the fact that he came back and then broke yeah. in the door and was able Police to do this came to her house at 3 a.m and he left and mm-hmm. then the next morning she doesn't come to work like she did everything right it's it's so frustrating. It eventually only took the jury five hours to decide Oberhansley was guilty. He was convicted of murder and burglary. The jury reached a not guilty verdict on rape charges. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. So I want to talk to you a little bit about what that was like when you heard guilty. Like, what was the atmosphere like? What did people do? What did he do? Well, it had, okay, so it had been six days, and then it took them five hours. Uh We did not know how long it would take, and we were a little bit surprised. I guess we, I was surprised that they were already done just because of the amount of evidence in the case and how much was there and how many points were there. We saw him right after the charges. They walked him out in front of us. And he just, I think, yelled again that he was innocent, that he didn't do it, and that two men killed Tammy. He just kept saying that to us. The prosecutor came out and was crying. And one of Tammy's friends was there, and he hugged her. And he was really, really emotional and said that he called it, he was like, this has been a war but we have found justice or something like that at the end. And so it felt a little bit conclusive there, yeah. at least, that we had that. Yeah, because he had to he had to go through the mistrial, too. Like, he went through most of the, I think, mm-hmm. I don't know how many days, but, like, to have all that work because of something a witness mentioned and in a mistrial, and then you have to start it all over again. I can just not believe that he took the stand personally was surprised by that and the fact that he went through his entire story yet again he was like look at the text messages she was the one yelling at me I didn't say anything mean back which is true he was like texting back being like I had a wonderful night Saturday I love you so much I just want to love and cherish you and the fact that he was he just stood up there and just a second time was like I got knocked out and I think the prosecutor said, he's like, well, I don't want to insult your intelligence to debunk <laughs> the story, but I will. And just like, amazing. Get just like went through, because there was no DNA found in that house other than Tammy and Joseph's. There was nothing right. anywhere. Yeah. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. I don't know if I said that. Um, he filed an appeal in 2020 last month. That's May of 2023. The Indiana Supreme Court upheld his life sentence without parole so he can go sit on a stove. But here's why I'm so fucking mad. This is I the just, I know what you're going to say. Did because you read the headline? No, I saw a picture and I clicked yeah. on it and I pulled up the article and I'm pissed. Yeah, this is the part of the story where we find out that in 1998, Oberhansley was charged with killing his then 17-year-old girlfriend and shooting his mother in Utah. So wait, how did he, I am now remembering this, how did he get off with that? I'll tell you, I want to highlight a quote from Prosecutor Mole, who later said, I don't know if it was in an interview later, because I don't think they were allowed to bring this, the criminal history up. He said, quote, the system should have been paying attention. And yeah. that is 100% true. 15 years before Oberhansley confessed to killing his ex-girlfriend and eating parts of her body, he gunned down his then 17-year-old girlfriend, Sabrina Elder, 
in what the Courier Journal calls, quote, a meth-filled, jealous rage. He then shot his own mother in the back, shot at his sister, tucked the gun under his chin, and pulled the trigger. According to that same Courier Journal article, one psychiatrist wrote, he actually gave himself a partial lobotomy by doing that. So he had a bullet in his brain. Like, he shot himself after he murdered that 17-year-old girl. He was later convicted of manslaughter, not murder, and sentenced to 12 years in prison. That's because he pled guilty to get a lesser charge. He later told a parole board that he believed the bullet in his brain, quote, calmed him. But his family members said it made him a monster, and others warned that he should be kept locked away. He wasn't a monster before. Right. Well, I'm sure it didn't help to have a <laughs> right. bullet in your it brain. It seems like it didn't it didn't do anything good for him. He was released in 2012, released after serving 12 years. He was let out on parole after those 12 years and arrived in southern Indiana in 2012. And it gets worse. He went to live with his mother in southern Indiana, who, remember, he shot. Apparently, she forgave him and advocated for his release. So I have several questions for that woman. He would later be arrested two more times in two years, which would violate his parole. His parole was never revoked. Yeah, so he should be in jail. He walked out of prison both times, yes. His parole officer said he always showed up for meetings and passed all his drug tests, but I feel like if you're arrested on parole, you don't get to be on parole anymore. Yeah, you shouldn't have the option. Do you know how many people have, like, righteously paid their time and are reformed? Like marijuana. Yeah, and want parole and don't get granted it. And this fuck who is clearly just, like, doesn't care about anything because he's continuously breaking the law Mm -hmm. just gets to walk out of prison. Yep, and wait till you find out what he was arrested for. According to the Courier-Journal, in 2013, a bartender called police about a disturbance in the apartment above the bar. When police arrived, a woman answered the door saying, quote, he is killing my boyfriend. Officers found Oberhansley in the bathroom, naked, choking a man who was barely conscious. Police had to tase him twice to get him off. He was booked into jail on charges of aggravated battery, strangulation, and resisting law enforcement. He was released on a $1,000 bond. Like, I don't know if prosecutors weren't aware of his previous violence, but one, his bond shouldn't have been that low. Two, he should have been thrown right back in jail and stayed there. But this is where the system is fucked. News of his arrest somehow didn't make it back to the Utah parole board because... The murder happened in Utah. He's now in Indiana. The Utah Parole Board could have issued a warrant on a parole violation, but didn't. How is he even allowed to leave the state of Utah? I don't know. Because he served his time. He served his time. But if you're on parole, doesn't that mean you're on a tight leash? Yeah, you have to check in. and But I don't know if, like... There are circumstances if he if he has nowhere to go but live with his mom who lives in Indiana. So whose fault is that on local police then for not? I think it's on a lot of people. I think the word just didn't get back to the Utah parole board. Like the Utah parole board wasn't checking on him. The Indiana, whoever was his parole officer, should have made sure that that got back to the Utah parole board. Just a little over a day after his parole ended, Oberhansley was back in jail. This time, he led police on a chase. He was later charged with criminal recklessness with a deadly weapon and resisting arrest. So, like, he should have been back in prison. So, I do have a note about this, you guys. I just saw this, that there was a low-speed police chase. I think this is the 
Oh, this is the specialist and forensic psychiatrist who was interviewed during his trial who was talking about this. She was saying he was pulled over. He told me that he felt threatened by police, that they weren't the real police, and that they were trying to cut his head off. And she called his mental illness just complex and complicated. So I think it was just like there was so much mental illness that is just like intertwined with this story that I I don't know. It's just there's so many loopholes in it now. Yeah. And then for both of them not to agree not to mention the mental illness. Like, I don't understand. Like, that seems like the biggest player here. That and drugs. Was that the first time that he ever was mentally evaluated after he killed Tammy? I don't know. I mean, that's when I first saw it, but I don't know if he was mentally evaluated in the first murder, after the first murder, or manslaughter, I should say, because he was convicted of that. I also want to circle back on the murder conviction because murder doesn't feel big enough. Like, were there no charges about, like, I mean, I know there are, yeah, there's multiple things about, like, corpses and and all of that, like... And isn't cannibalism a charge also? Why didn't he get... I was thinking about this earlier today, and I really wonder if it's because, and I don't know the court system well enough, but if it's because this is what there was enough evidence to get beyond a doubt he killed her and we can get on the ins and outs of what the jigsaw was doing there or what was used for what but circumstantial yes so I wonder if that was the case because I feel like you know this guy we were just trying to get him locked up we were just trying to get him away from people yeah you feel like that might have been a prosecutor's decision I to... feel like that when I say yeah. we it's not me <laughs> I mean, in case that wasn't clear I mean I think that that could be a prosecutor's decision to yeah. say hey this is what we can definitely beyond get. a reasonable doubt proof yeah yeah because yeah, you could I guess technically explain away a lot of the after Like, I think they knew they could for sure get him on the murder and get him put away without all the other charges. But yeah, I agree with you. So then Um, with um, with the rape charge, do you think that that was because they felt like they had like the text messages and then like the testimony of of like her friends that they thought they could get that charge also? Okay, so the rape conversation was an entire day of court. Um, wow. I cannot believe to sit in a room like that and listen, that has to be hard. Two defense attorneys explain away a rape, like yeah, alleged rape. Yeah, so essentially what they found was torn clothing. So they could say that her, I don't know if it was shorts underwear but there was evidence that there there was a struggle and there was clothing that had been torn from her okay what they didn't and then they took a swab i don't know how much you guys want to actually go ahead and go into it the true crime podcast we got it we talked about the other day okay so. so they did do a swab and they did find joseph's DNA. They did not find sperm. And Mm. this was the argument. If there was rape that night, that they would have found sperm and not just DNA. Unless he couldn't perform. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Just because. But I mean, it's it's very convoluted. Yeah, beyond a reasonable doubt. Could they prove it? And they had a specialist on there who said there were no signs of physical trauma in regards to sexual assault. So there was no actual physical evidence of trauma. It became an entire conversation about oh well 
you know, they they were they were having sex before this happened. How long can that DNA be there? Did she take a right. shower that morning? Like a shower conversation. Like we really got into it. That's and frustrating. It is, right? Because I mean, ugh, I mean, at the end of the day, this is a domestic violence and sexual assault case. And it's yeah. really sad to watch a woman have be put through something like this. And, and it's unimaginable. Yeah. 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 So that brings that brings me back. We're at the beginning of our story. Ober Hansley's past manslaughter conviction was what pushed Tammy to break up with him. She found out about all of that stuff. So according to her friends, she found out, but he told her he was just a kid and changed. So she kind of gave him a second chance for a while. But according to a national interview with Nancy Grace, who is problematic in and of herself, yeah, her, father said, <laughs> her father said, her father said, Tammy soon became withdrawn after she started dating him. She wasn't allowed to see her friends. Oberhansley became super controlling. He even added his name to her Facebook account so he could keep tabs on her. So just a controlling, manipulative asshole on top of being a murderer. But that's how so, that's how you get yeah. to where we are. I yeah. mean, you don't get to forcibly breaking into your ex-girlfriend's house and aggressively murdering her. You don't just go from being a great boyfriend right. to that. Like, there were signs. How many red flags can we count in, in the yeah, lead up to this? <laughs> and the prosecutor mentioned that this what we learned about Joseph Oberhansley was his need to be in control. And by her mm -hmm. breaking up with him, changing the locks on the house, that was taking that control away from him. And so that made him angry. At the end of the day, this man should have been in prison. Yeah. The yeah. system didn't do his job and it cost Tammy her life. I do want to bring things back to focus on Tammy. She was a vibrant, confident woman with a long life ahead of her, and she was selfishly, brutally killed by a monster. And she got lost. She got lost in the coverage about her yeah. own murder. And yeah. that's so frustrating. But I did find an article from WHAS 11 that focused on what her family said. Is that where you're from? Yeah. So Tammy's mother and sister-in-law addressed Oberhansley in court during the sentencing. The family members told Oberhansley, quote, he's lucky to be alive and, quote, deserves to spend every day in prison thinking about what he did. Tammy's mom, Linda Harbin, expressed her anger and pain that built up through the six years of legal battles. And here comes the audacity. And I want you, Abby, to tell me how you reacted. Oberhansley was vocal throughout the trial, expressing his innocence, and interrupted her mom during her victim impact statement thing. He interrupted you... a lot of people during the trial. She was not the only one. So I was not there at the sentencing because it was like a week later. We talked about it. The family was staying quiet. This was the first time that that mother actually was able to stand up and talk about her daughter. Yes. Yeah. And was interrupted. Oh, God. But good on this woman because she looked him in the eye and said, quote, you know you did this. Period. I think there was a um, rotten hell statement thrown out yeah, as well. A lot. I think most of her family members told them told them to rotten hell, which I fully support. Linda said her daughter was always trying to help others, that she was actually trying to help Oberhansley before it all turned bad. Um, Tammy's mom told WLKY, quote, she was a daughter, she was a sister, she was an aunt, she was loved by so many. She said she had a contagious laugh and was genuinely a happy person. 
And it's just unthinkable that this man should not have been out on the streets. Like if the system worked the way it was supposed to, she would be alive right now. And that's the main thing I want everyone to take away from this. I want you all to be as mad as I am. Can I say though, I would say to take away too, as women, I think there are many women who can say that they have a friend or have known someone who has been assaulted or is going through a difficult situation with a man and Tammy's friend from work was texting her throughout the night, throughout the next morning, and was the one who called the police when she wasn't getting texts back. And that was why they were there hours after this happened. So check up. These things, unfortunately, are a possibility. And so if anything, we really do want to stand by each other. And we can, can, um, at the end of the show notes, put some resources out there for domestic violence survivors or tips or things you can do as a bystander, because that is, that's a really important point. Dang. Aren't we always sad? Okay. Fun fact. The Eiffel Tower gets taller in the summer. Wow. Wow, I went there in the winter. Lame. (laughs) Yeah. Short. It actually did look really short. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I actually noticed the difference. I would like, comment I on the Eiffel Tower TikTok page. Oh, a short king, and then it'll get offended. Oh my gosh, <laughs> a short king! We love a short king. That is so so funny. Oh my gosh. Well, Abby, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. You you added so much content yes. to. Thank you this so case. much. Good. I'm glad I could. Thank you guys for having me. As former journalists, we want to give credit where credit is due. For this episode, I got my information from the Courier Journal, Law and Crime, Oxygen, News and Tribune, Wave, WDRB, People, WLKY, The Daily News, USA Today, Salt Lake Tribune, Indie Star, Star Press, and WHAS. You can find a complete list of our sources, including those sources for domestic violence help and tips. You can find those in our show notes. Please make sure to check them out. Bye! Okay, bye!